Today we are starting a new study on the book of Habakkuk, which is, uh, huh? How about that? Are you impressed? That is a sexy, sexy series. Um, and so uh, one of the latter prophets of the Old Testament, uh, really, to be honest with you, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty intense book. And so we're looking forward to the last, hand, uh, the n- next few weeks, uh, not only as we approach Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, but also as we come into the season uh, of Lent, observing Lent. And so I uh, just want to let you know what we're about to do. And today, Jason Morris is going to be uh, leading us. Some of you guys got to meet Jason if you're over when we were at South, our, our little Southwest location. Uh, introduce him and his family, Allison, his wife. Uh, I, I love Jason Allison. They're amazing family, just uh, are fairly new to Austin. He does leadership training. Essentially, he's the national director of the leadership program for a denomination for the Free Methodist Church of North America. And he got the opportunity to choose any church to base out of in America, like literally had opportunity to move to Southern California and said, I want to go to Austin New Church. And so that's pretty cool, don't you think? Um, so no pressure on us whatsoever to be a good church to him. Uh, but anyways, he's here this morning, going to be sharing with us and he's going to, is serving with ANC, uh, alongside of the nomination as we, uh, kind of just press forward. And so I wanted to introduce him to you before he came up here. So you didn't say, who's this insanely cool dude? No, I'm just whatever. Uh, but why don't, before we do that, why don't you go ahead and stand up again? Because I just want you to stand up and I want you to say hello to the people around you because you're nicer when you do that. That got loud and they got really quiet all of a sudden. That's pretty amazing. Look around you. There's hardly any seats in here. Notice that? God's doing something great. Let me tell you why we're in Austin. Uh, I was a missionary kid, grew up in Mexico, and we would have to come back to the border every 180 consecutive days because when I was growing up, we couldn't legally do missions in Mexico. Being a completely Catholic country, they did not take kindly to Protestants. So we feigned as tourists (laughs) and drove back to the States every six months. So we would stay all over Texas, anybody who had a free spot for us to, to land in. So I have grown up with Austin in my radar for 40 years, and I've only deeply wanted to live here for the last probably 25 of those 40 years. So, I, you know, out of curiosity, I say this everywhere I go, um, that Austin is a great city, and people say, well, what, what is it about Austin? What is it about Austin? You guys tell me, what is it? I mean, I think I know what it is, but it always sounds like it comes up short, Right. People from Seattle like, yeah, really, Austin? Come on. How can you be cooler than Seattle? So what is it? Tell me. Tacos? What else? Music almost every night, right? What else? Weather? Barton Springs Pool, which is open yesterday, right? Did you go? Who went? Nobody? It's a little cold still. Did you know that was opened yesterday? They did some cleaning. I don't know why I know these things. What else is cool about Austin? Come on. The trees. Yeah. 
Cedar fever. Woo! Every year for about a month, we're all just like hungover. Yeah. The good thing about the cedar is that it stops right as the oak picks up. Yeah. So, but compare that to the pl- I've been in Detroit and Des Moines in the last 10 days where the high in Des Moines was seven degrees. I saw a little meme on Facebook that says, the air hurts my face. Why do I live where the air hurts my face? Right. Good question, right? What else? If you had to compare Austin to two or three amazing American cities, what would you say? I know what I say, but I'm interested in what you would say. It's a cross-section between what? Portland? San Francisco. I always reference San Francisco. What else? Nashville. You nailed it. Exactly. I say, well, if you took maybe the progressive focus of Portland and you mixed it with the live music scene of Nashville and you swirled it all up in sort of a San Francisco package, it's a little bit sort of like sometimes Austin is, but it's better. And so so I had this pastor, one of our great pastors from Seattle says, you know what? You guys always talk. Austin is not that cool. I've never been, but trust me, it's not that cool. And I'm like, yeah, that's why you're from Seattle and we're from Texas. There is no feeling like getting off the plane after traveling in the polar vortex of the upper Midwest and coming home to Austin. I love this place. Let me tell you a little bit about what I love about this place. Um, Not just the fact that it's Texas's best city. We know this, right? But we hush-hush when we're in Dallas and Houston. But there's, a, there's an interesting thing going on here in Austin, New Church. There isn't a church in America I would rather be at than this one. The reason is, and I think I, we, we caught this um, probably a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago. There's this interesting sort of fast, hard fall from the large Texas to the missional thing that the hatmakers are on that we just instinctively knew we needed to know more about that. Now, I was gainfully employed at America's largest church, loving life there, doing really fun ministry, had no complaints, but I just knew that there was something about what the hatmakers were were setting out in terms of a flight trajectory that I needed to know more about. So we started to devour blogs and books, and we read seven, and we gave all our clothes away, and we froze, and we ate chia seeds, and we gave away our Lucases. Ah, no, we didn't, actually. I knew better. I'm not buying a pair of Lucases until I know Brandon moves on to another book. So when the next book comes out, I'll go buy those Luke cases I've been wanting. No, but we just knew there was something on these guys. It was a, you have to know that as I travel the country for the FMC, the Free Methodist Church, there's a universally, uh, it, it's equal parts esteem regarding curiosity as to what's going on at Austin New Church. Everywhere I have been, they know the name of Austin New Church. It, it's just something, I just, I'm, the reason I said it is so you look around and you realize you are in a really, really fantastic place. And if it's really boring for you, come with me to... Pennsylvania, where we get to go soon. And you will be reminded why it's so wonderful to be part of this. This is nitty-gritty and uncomplicated in ways that are just forward-thinking. Like what comes in second nature for us, it takes churches sometimes months to have the guts to even name the question, much less answer it. And that's kind of where we are. Are you glad to be here? Are you gl- can you tell I'm glad to be here? I'm glad to be here. It's a weird sensation of guest, speaker, and home church. And I don't really know what to make of it. I told my wife this morning, I don't know if I'm ready or not because I don't know if I feel like a guest. I don't want to be a guest here, but I still functionally sort of am. So give us some grace as we try to fill the shoes of some of the great speakers today. Um, And I have an interesting two-part ambition. We're going to go two totally different directions. And I'm going to see if you can sense the connection. Because I labored all week with this. And maybe you can see something that I don't see. I think there's a way to connect it, but I'm curious to see how it impacts you. So open your Bible, with, if you will, the book of Matthew. And it's in your bulletin. 
Um, Trey made me write in very small font and told me not to give you lots of room to write the stuff in the, in the blanks because Trey likes to write real small. He's got girls handling, uh, handwriting. He's very self-conscious about that. Actually, I sent that. I bought the Internet package on the plane coming down from up north, and I had sent that to him somewhere over Kansas. And the first thing he said back was, dude, for real? Like, nobody can write in those, in those spaces. So if you're obsessive compulsive and you can't write that small, this is going to drive you crazy. The altar will be open if you can't write that small in the end. If you can, you're going to make it. All right, so does anybody know, talk to me, does anybody know what we are about to begin in the church calendar starting on Wednesday? There's your hint. Lent. Lent. Does anybody know where it begins? What, what, what's the day that kind of launches it? It's not actually today. Ash, Ash Wednesday, right. What, why do we call it Ash Wednesday? Right, something on the head, Craig says, right. You guys, have, how many of you grew up, let me ask you this, how many of you grew up Catholic? Raise your hand. Keep it high. Be proud. How many of you grew up Episcopal? What about Lutheran? Okay. Some of our high church uh, traditions still preserve Lent. What is Lent? Tell me. Anyone? What is Lent? Boom. Christy nailed it. A time of reflection building up to what? Capital E ends in ter. Easter. Good. Yeah, Passover, exactly. It building up to Holy Week, right? Coming at us in the spring. Falls on April 20th this year, if I'm not mistaken. What are some of the traditions about Lent? Forget Ash Sunday, but Ash Wednesday. What about, what about Lent? What do you know? If you don't know, just look at Facebook. What's everybody talking about at the beginning of Lent? What's that? Restraint. Wow. I hope it's not just about restraint. Some for, that comes easy for some, not for others. It is about some kind of fasting from something, right? All your... Fr- What's that? Sacrifice. Nailed it. It's absolutely about sacrifice. Some of us will, our friends will disappear from Facebook because that's a really popular thing to fast these days. Great suffering in the American church. We're not Facebooking. (laughs) Yeah. We'll slide over to Instagram for 40 days and suffer for Jesus, right? We might actually pick up Twitter and try to figure out what the heck all that's about. Like I've never figured it all out, but I, I think I can do that during Lent as I suffer. Other things, people fast, big sacrifice, chocolate. Oh, yeah, chocolate, right? Some people will actually push back on alcohol and say, not these 40 days. Some people will fast all sorts of different things. Let's talk a little bit about what it is, because I want to prepare us as we go forward in a season that could be of great value to us, Catholic or not, Lutheran or not, Episcopal or not. There are some gifts that have been given the church that sustain our soul. The seasons of waiting and the seasons of anticipation are one of those great gifts. Now, I didn't discover this until deep into seminary, and I made a complete fool of myself in the class on liturgy the first time things like this were mentioned because I knew nothing. I was a pastor's kid, grew up in the church, and knew nothing of Lent. I thought Advent was a speaker company. My mom had some Advent speakers in the 70s. Y'all remember those? Those were good. Well, I wish they made them that way. I had no notion for the church calendar. I thought, what's that? Is that like what the sisters in the church put together with the casseroles in it? Like, I had no idea what these things were. But I have leaned into a discovery that for me has been life-sustaining. And as we've talked about this as a staff, I think there will be some, a, a new way of looking at the season that's upon us that will help us avoid the following, where we just stumble into an empty tomb on Easter Sunday. And in the period of about five hours, we realize, oh man, I got to go get a pink tie and white shoes for the girls, right? I've got five girls and it's $300 worth of shoes every Easter because it's what we do, right? That's right. Not anymore. We're in Texas now. It's about 5000 because Luke Casey's don't run cheap, do they, Kristen? 
Just saying. But we stumble into these moments in history, and if we don't freeze frame a process and ease in, we're just in over our heads, and before you know it, it's gone. Same thing happens with Christmas. Have you noticed? The build-up season to Christmas really is the, what, is, what do they call it? The retail season, right? It begins now at, I don't know, May Day or whatever. It begins right after Easter and we begin building for Christmas. But the gift to the church are these seasons of anticipation. Did you know you can literally increase your appetite by holding certain things back for a season? What does it do? It increases your desire to move in that place where God brings all these things together. And you can appreciate the fact that our Savior got up from the dead. And we, of all people, would be the most pathetic on earth if he does not. See, the disciples at this point in history, all those years ago, didn't actually know the end game. In fact, it's probably pretty logical to assume they hadn't figured all this out. If the night before this all happens, they're still cutting off ears and hiding. They didn't have the luxury. We've got the luxury, but there's great value in stopping and slowing down and saying, okay, for these 40 days, we're going to allow anticipation to build. A great way to do that is to take things away or to add things to what we're doing devotionally during those 40 days. The scriptural basis for Lent is in Matthew 4, 1 through 2. It's in your bulletin. simply reads this. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Boy, that's profound. He was hungry. I'm hungry just listening to that. Notice that it says he was led. In some places, it literally almost means he was pulled into the desert by the Spirit. For a 40-day season of preparation for the ministry that was coming on. Now, he had prepared 30 years for this. But there's something profound about that 40-day season in which he literally wanted for that sustenance of his soul. He comes out of the wilderness and tells his disciples things like, look, there's no bread like, like the Father. You, there's no bread like the, my broken body. He's got a whole different energy source. And, and, and however you look at this, there's that 40 days preparation, that wilderness experience that prepared him for what comes next. Let's look at some of those blanks. Lent is a self-imposed season of prayer, fasting, and the sharing of our resources designed to enrich our soul and clarify our mission. There's nothing obligatory about Lent. It's a self-imposed thing. There's great value in it. But we're not doing this to earn anything, right? We're doing this because it gets us in a frame of mind and prepares us for what's coming. Self-imposed season of prayer. Lent, traditionally, in all of the Christian traditions, consists of these three things. Increased prayer, increased fasting, and increased giving. A lot of people will do creative things, and they'll say, I'm going to fast these things that I love, and all that money I'm going to give to the poor. It's creative. Or they'll say, I'm going to increase my time in prayer instead of lunch and all the money I save, I'm going to give to the poor. These are interesting ways of going about it. If the Lord puts some of this on your heart, explore. But it's those three components. Why do we give ourselves to prayer, fasting, and the giving to the poor? Somebody help me. Why do we do this? Because Jesus did. Is God short on resources for the poor? Could he pretty much solve it? Mm Mm-hmm. Why does he ask us to get involved in these three things? Talk to me. This is the reason we do devotion. This is the reason we do what we do as Christians. This is the reason we give ourselves to this time. Is it that he doesn't know us? No. Why do we do it? Somebody help me out. Makes us more like him. Who said to, to draw close to him? Now, here's an interesting question. Is he near always or only when we pray? Ooh, hang, hang on. We, had, we went two different directions. Do you hear that? Is he near 
always or only when we seek him. So who's changing in this exchange? There you go. That's it. That's the bottom line, isn't it? When we sit in these seasons, we are literally transformed and shaped into godliness or his perspective. So here's some of the technical stuff. It begins in Ash Wednesday, and it ends on Holy Saturday, the night before Easter morning, right? If you've got liturgy in your background, you remember a lot of these. Uh, The night before, it's 40 days minus the Sundays. Have you ever sat down with the calendar and tried to figure out, how, how do they figure 40 days? That's like 46 or 7 days. Well, it's 40 days minus the Sabbath. This is funny math. You never trust the church on math. I'm just saying, especially not the ancient church. 40 days But the Sabbath, here's what the ancient church said. The ancient church says, you know, Sabbath days are when we celebrate the resurrection of the Lord year round. So we will not fast on Sundays. We will feast on Sundays. And then Monday morning, we will get up and we will begin that Lenten fast and journey again until Saturday night. There's a rhythm here. There's a texture here. Here's what I'm trying to suggest we consider. There is a shaping of our soul when we give ourselves to these things. There is a way to walk away having encountered God in the wilderness that changes everything else we do. It's most often observed by giving up something meaningful or adding something meaningful to our daily life. You notice the typo there? No copy editors here. Most often observed, my. Does yours say my? Did you ever try to type on a laptop on a plane? What's up with those seats? They're like smaller than a car seat now. So you need like the computer that like attaches to your glasses so you could type because there's like, anyway, sorry. Typo. So let's look at this. The next one, Lent is an embrace of wilderness for the sake of seeing things God's way. See, Jesus had the power to walk right out of the wilderness and get on with his public ministry, didn't he? But he was modeling something, wasn't he? Question for you. Are you in a wilderness season? There's two kinds of wildernesses. Those that we self-impose and those that we don't choose. I woke up this morning thinking about a very dear friend who has been in a wilderness her whole life. She cries out to God on a daily basis for children. She's been married 25 years. She's 50 years old, and she has begged God for her entire life for a kid. It's not a wilderness she chose. I think of what I did for a living for 13 years before I moved to Texas in 2010. I went to work for the company that my wife's father-in-law worked for. It was a stone quarry. We literally ran Tonka trucks, exploded stuff, blasted, hauled, sorted, crushed, and sold 100,000 tons of of aggregate a day. It was the largest limestone surface quarry in all of the continental U.S. It was a mammoth operation. It was fun for about three months. It was really cool. If you've never sat in an fully articulated 17 cubic ton bucket loader and you turn the wheel and the whole machine lurches, it doesn't just steer as you move. It like lurches. That's pretty cool for three months. And I figured, honestly, the cry of my heart was, Lord, put us back in ministry. We had been youth pastors. We had served in Mexico. We had done lots of exciting things. I thought we were on a temporary wilderness that would last six months tops. Thirteen years later, I could barely believe the last day I went to work because I had learned to embrace the wilderness. And it wasn't easy. Let me tell you, it wasn't easy. I walked around with this snotty air all the time that I was better than, I was better than this. I was better than this. Seriously, dump trucks and stone? Are you kidding me? It's five degrees out. My very first winter in Chicago, I was on the third shift labor crew. And we worked in, I mean, when it's cold, when it's zero degrees outside, inside a stone plant made of crushers and conveyor belts and steel and stone, I swear it's 20 degrees colder. I was a kid raised in Mexico. Hometown was Florida, Sanibel Island, Florida. I did not have it for the cold, bro. It was a miserable, pathetic wilderness. 
It wasn't pretty. I begged God every day to get me out of there. We were there 13 years. I've got three pictures in my office taken by a famous photographer of the stone quarry. And I remember that as a school of formation that equals or exceeds anything I ever spent on education. Let me tell you, that will break you down. That was not a chosen wilderness. Lent is something we choose because it produces in us the same yearning and longing to see God's power made real in our lives. But I want to be sensitive this morning because some of these wildernesses we are in are not chosen. And here we are. Brokenness, addiction, violence, loneliness. These are things that shape us whether we like it or not. Wilderness is a season of hunger and of waiting that prepares us for the revelation of God's strength. See, we are the Easter people. We know Easter is coming. We know our Savior gets up from the dead. We know in the end that death itself falls prey to the conquering love of Jesus Christ for the world. We know this. But a season of hunger and waiting prepares us to know this at a deeper level. We are the Easter people who live in the tension of two great confessions of Holy Week. Do you remember what they were? What was shouted as Jesus entered in to Jerusalem that first day of Holy Week? Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were making Davidic references of this guy, meaning this was their guy. He's riding in literally on the back of a donkey, and they're praising him with the language that surrounds the restoration of David's kingdom in the earth. They knew they had their man. But what's so fascinating about that great confession of Hosanna is by week's end, what were those same voices saying? What was it? Crucify him. This is the tension for us as believers in Lent. This is why we mark our heads with ashes, or don't if we don't, but if you do, we do. Does anybody have any idea what those ashes consist of? Are these ashes that priests buy at churchsupply.com? Somebody knows. Say it. From when? From the pre- Now watch this. From the previous Palm Sunday... Those fronds are collected, gathered, incinerated, and preserved because that confession of Hosanna, Hosanna will soon be the confession of crucify him, and we are broken if he doesn't redeem us again. Those ashes were our last year's confession. You see, but in a matter of a week, he goes from being everything we hoped for to being this guy that says, and to get there, you got to go through death. And that's where we say, I don't know. I don't know if I can do it. Either we hide, we start cutting ears off, Or we simply walk away and say, how about crucify this one? How about give us Barabbas? If we can have a choice, give us the other guy. Crucify Jesus because we're done with this. Because death is not part of what we've imagined. So this is the tension we sit with. This is the tension we sit with. Our very voice will go from Hosanna to crucify him. That's a painful one. Let that wash over your soul. And he knew this. He knew the deal. And he still signed the contract with us. Powerful stuff. We were part of a reformed church up north for those 13 years while I worked at the quarry. And when we sort of backdoored our way into enough liturgy to preserve Holy Week and Ash Wednesday, it's one of my favorite services. And our senior pastor took the fronds home and burned them in his chimney and kept them in a baggie for the next year. And it had chunks of, he didn't burn them well and they didn't. But I will never forget that service because we were aware that we are marking ourselves not only with a cross that says we've been redeemed, but we're marking ourselves with an awareness of our own confession. See, guys, no other thing will lead a broken world to Jesus. Perfect Christians won't do it. Perfect Christians won't do it. Broken Christians who can say, follow us, 
as we grow into the direction of Jesus Christ, knowing that we, we are fickle people. We will go from, he's the one to give us a different one. So quickly our heads spin. Okay, so that's Lent. Now, it doesn't begin until Wednesday. Now, I don't know how you want to begin it. I don't know what you're going to do. I can tell you what I'm going to do, and at the risk of sounding sacrilegious here, I'll, you're going to find me at Santa Cruz in, in Buda. Because they preserve enough of a liturgy that's just refreshing to my soul. Every Friday night, does anybody know what goes on a Friday night during Lent? Every Friday night building up to Easter. Stations of the Cross. There's my wife talking. Stations of the Cross. Does anybody know what that is? The, the 15 stops along the Via Dolorosa, literally while Jesus carries the cross to his crucifixion. There's 15 different points where Scripture stops and observes that in freeze frame, freeze frame time. And so what Catholic parishes and some ortho, most Orthodox and even some Episcopal parishes will do, they will gather on Friday evening to pray through a liturgy that simply focuses us back on those 15 steps. Why do we do this? Why don't we just rush to the punchline? Why don't we just charge to the finish line? Because our souls need to be washed in time. The rising and the falling of the sun shape who we are. We need to move slowly through these 15 places until we see our Savior crucified again because it never fails to produce the right stuff in our soul. So I don't know how you want to do it. I can tell you how we're going to do it. It's profound stuff. Lent is one of two great seasons of waiting. The other one is Advent, building up to Christmas, right? Same deal. Wait for it, right? Wait for it. Wait for it until it grabs your soul in a new way. Until we can look at the commercial options of Easter and Christmas and say, yeah, no, not so much. We've got a far better gig going on here with Jesus. Okay, take, take a deep breath. Deep breath. Let's hear it. Okay, we're going to go a totally different direction now. Totally different direction. We're not just beginning our, to prepare ourselves for Lent, but we're also starting a series in the book of Habakkuk. Okay? So open your Bibles if you want to try to find it. If the person next to you is super spiritual, don't try to find it because you're going to look silly. Just look at your, your, uh, your hand out there. Habakkuk, minor prophet, writes in an honest and very, very verbal way. Have you read this this week? Complaining about God. Just getting right up in God's kitchen saying, look, you, you're not who they say you are. Because look what I'm looking at. And this means you're not coming through. Habakkuk writes during a time in ancient history when the northern and southern kingdoms of what we would call Israel, or the people of God, had been divided. Do you remember why they divided? They split on the issue of what? Anybody remember? Their monarchies and where they did worship. So the northern kingdom of Israel had already been hauled off into captivity, and the, the, the faithful few remained in the south, in the, in the province, in the area we call Judah. Well, Habakkuk writes to the, to the kingdom of Judah during a time when they had one of their particularly bad kings. He was a bad dude. They lived in fear of greater kingdoms of Egypt, Assyria, and Babylon, and all these different people that wanted that land, probably for more, more for fertile and commercial reasons than any other thing. But Habakkuk is writing to God, complaining and crying out to God because the wickedness in the kingdom of Judah was more than he could stand. Now, I want to warn you about Habakkuk. It's a book that's it's quick. It's three chapters. It goes fast. For us to slow down and take this in bite sizes means we're going to need to, to really hang on to our seatbelts, okay? Because it, this is pretty scary stuff. Let's read those first four, four verses. Actually, if you've got it there, read it along with me. There's nothing more beautiful than hearing God's people read, read God's word. So read along with me. How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? 
Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. The end. What an uplifting book. What bizarre stuff. This is a classic example of a prophecy of lament. Right? There is a dissonance in Habakkuk's view between the way things ought to be and the way things are. There is a disconnection between God's justice in the earth and what he's living in a real time, looking around him in living color. It's a classic example of prophecy of lament, to cry to God, unwilling to accept the injustice in the world. And again, if you can get all these letters in your blank, you are our hero. Lunch on tray today at the restaurant of your choice. <laughs> we got a taker. Over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about this small book and this deep yearning by this, pro- this minor prophet. Now, minor prophet, not because it was a minor message. Minor because it was short, right? He writes during the same time as Jeremiah. I'm sure we've heard of Jeremiah. And he's crying out to God because things are not the way they ought to be. And so as a season of Lent, I would add that as we stir into our longing to see God come in power in a new way, to take us to that wilderness place that readies us for the inbreaking kingdom of God, I would, I, I, would, I would add to this that part of what we're going to be considering as a church is an awareness that there is great injustice in the world. And we are the kinds of people who just can't tolerate that very long, right? We're the kind of people who say, if there's injustice, we need to do something about this. That's certainly the impulse in Habakkuk. You see, the world is broken. Very broken. But then again, so are we. The danger here would be to walk away and say the world is unjust and we're all good. And if you read all the way through the book, which I'm suggesting you consider doing just to stay ahead of the curve, God schools Habakkuk in chapter 2. He schools him in a way that is some of the most eloquent verse in the Bible. It says Habakkuk had forgotten that God's ultimate goal was always to cover the whole earth with his glory like the waters covers the sea. See, here's the problem. Habakkuk says... We got issues, you need to clean your house or you're not just. And God says, oh, I'm planning on cleaning all right and I'm going to use the Babylonians to do it. Which to Habakkuk changed the subject entirely. Now not only is God going to do something about injustice, but he's going to use the Dallas Cowboys to do it. If you're a Cowboys fan, I'm sorry. He's going to use, let's see, uh, Texas A&M to do it. No, 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 I can't, can't do that either here, right? What happens... When you're in this place and you know what's wrong and you're begging God for an answer and God's solution is the furthest thing from your mind and he chooses to answer your question with an answer that's unacceptable, it's worse than the original question. I tell God as a younger younger man, I want to be a youth pastor. You know what my heart is desiring to do. You know what God is, you know what you've called us to do. And I say, prepare me. He says, okay, quarry. So that was my Babylon, right? Like, it doesn't make sense. How could God do this? Like, no, God, you got it wrong. I'm the wrong guy. Wrong serial number. Look again. And I'm hoping that even as we talk about this, that the Spirit turns your attention to something in your life where you're crying out to God because the answer he gave you doesn't go with your question. Unless it does. For his purposes. See, Habakkuk is going to show us how to sit in the injustice and in the tension and say... 
We don't, it doesn't make sense. Before we rush to action, here's what absolutely must be true about us as a people. We must make peace with our hunger. We must be willing to sit in the ashes until God's answer emerges. Our answer may not be the right answer. We might mobilize in the wrong way when God has something entirely different in mind. That's why we wrestle with injustice. We don't solve it. We're shaped by it. We do what we can. But it changes us, us as much as we change anything in the world. Are you with me? God assures Habakkuk that he's keeping score. Even the vessel of wrath Babylon will one day be judged. See, prayer and lament must precede action or we'll miss God's vision for the world. It's got to come first. Or else we might mobilize in a direction that God has not intended for us to go. It made sense for Paul to work among the Jews and Peter to work among the humble. And yet the wilderness produced entirely different things in their lives. It made sense for us to stay in Mexico where I grew up, where all my ministry equity was built, where all of my connections were. There was a time not that long ago where I could not have imagined preaching in English. My English was not good. My Spanish was far better. It didn't make sense for God to transplant us and send us to Chicago. It didn't make sense to be in the quarry. It doesn't make sense to be where you are sometimes. But the answer that God is bringing has that divine signature that can only be his. And I think that's what he's in the game for. But before we move to action, we have to sit and ponder and allow God's vision for the world to be birthed in us. There's a quote that Matthew Hansen put on his blog this week. It says, to learn to lament is to become a people who stay near the wounds of the world. That's where Jesus is. We don't get close to the poor because we're going to make them rich. We get close to the poor because then we are reminded how impoverished we are if we only see the world our way. Does that resonate with you? So help me now. And I mean this. Help me think this through. What's the connection between Lent and Habakkuk? Think about it. Some of you guys are gifted at this stuff. What do you see that I don't see? What's the connection here between a season of waiting and a, and a self-imposed wilderness and the vision that Habakkuk is having in this discussion between him? See, Habakkuk will end in high praise. Habakkuk 3 is one of the most elegant chapters in all of the Old Testament. It will end with him giving God his, his, his due. But what is, what do we, what's in common between Lent and Habakkuk? Did I have a hand back there? Yes. Okay. Good. Very good. What else? What do you see? I see. Ooh. See, see, Habakkuk or Habakkuk runs to God saying, it's not fair, it's not fair. And God says, guess what? Even the Babylonians are in my plan. My glory is going to wash the whole world, not just Judah. So our own depravity sometimes is the boundaries within which we think that God can work. So like he's, he, can, he can work in the church, right? Yeah, but don't go, to, no, don't go to that church. They vote different than we do, right? And God's going to say part of the waiting in the wilderness is to give you different categories. And they're all going to be different. They're going to be his categories. And the whole world is figured in. We are Wesleyan in this regard. We believe that God chose the whole world in Jesus Christ. No other categories matter to me. Don't tell me they're picked and God picked them and God didn't pick these. He chose the world in Jesus Christ. So part of that depravity, my depravity, 
It's confidence in the strength of my own categories. God says, no, that's part of what I'm cooking out of you in the wilderness. Very good. What else? Changes your focus from what to what? Good. Is that what Lent is all about? Absolutely. Maybe you guys see better connections than I do. What else? What else? Connections between 40 days of wilderness and the story of Habakkuk. Wrong. No, yeah, of course. <laughs> learning to trust, learning to trust patiently. Good. There was somebody else back here. The wait for it. There's a place in Habakkuk. I don't know the verse right now because it, it literally says, wait for it. Wait for it. Wait for it. I will come through. I'm going to be there at the end. Good. What else? That's right. That's, 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 that's in chapter, in, in the second part of chapter one, that's literally what God says. Habakkuk, if I told you what was up, you would not even believe it. So like young man, starting to work in a stone quarry, third shift, tinfoil on my window so I can sleep, working in the loudest, filthiest environment in the world. If God would have given me the answer I wanted, which was, what are you up to? If he would have said 13 years, you're going to be there. I'd have said, toodles, dude. I'm done with you. I'm going to try some other divinity because this is no way, Right. Do you ever get the sense that something is behind the silence? And it's learning to trust until you can get up and say, I will serve these people with everything in me until you can be glorified in this. That's good, man. You guys are deep. Somebody else over here had something? Connection between Lent and Habakkuk. Yes. Okay, so we settled that. You're up next week. Seriously. No, that's, that's it. That's it. That's it. Here's, here's the little bit that I could pull out of space to sort of help us. I think Lent is about waiting well. Lent is learning to wait well. Does that make sense? It's a self-imposed hunger intended to increase our appetite. Ladies and guys, if you have not read Ann Voskamp this week, go, run, hurry to your computer and read her beautiful articulation of how to increase appetite through the lens of her grandma in the kitchen. Do it. I'm telling you. Self-imposed hunger intended to increase our appetite for God. I don't know if some of the meals that I've eaten growing up were really as good as they were if I was just so hungry. You know what I'm talking about? When you get to the table and you're just so ready that everything tastes like, like God made it himself. We can increase our appetite for God. If we are asleep and spiritually apathetic, there are things we can do and give ourselves to that will increase our awareness and our, and our appetite for God in our, in our lives and in the world. Finally, Habakkuk shows us how to sit in the season until God comes through. And God will school us in that season. Now, as you close your notes, it's my prayer that the Holy Spirit would flood into your consciousness right now and just begin to point out things in your life that we have cried for God to be relieved of that we might today say, God, give me the patience to sit with this and school me in this exchange. Because I know there are things in my life. And I'm guessing there are things in your life as well.